How many of you are ready to grow in your leadership? Most of the times, the growth option is the scariest one. Imagine the legacy you would want and then work backwards. A rebel leader looks at every situation with curiosity. But don't become such an expert that you can't see things anymore. The question I'm asking is, will you lead when you were invited to? You might not be exactly where you want to be in life. But we need to look our fear straight in the eye. And find your groove. Our legacy is defined by how we treat others. The ability to take social risks is as important as a breakthrough idea. Only you can choose how you want to impact your society. What's the best that can happen? The very reason you are where you are is because you're the right person for this moment. Well, good morning, Illuminate. Great to be with you. As you just saw a little caption, we had the uh, privilege of being a host site for the Global Leadership Summit, and it was just an amazing time. We have a room full of leaders here, and as you all know, things rise and things fall on leadership, and they have a saying, when the leader gets better, everybody gets better. Now, as Christians, we have the great blessing of being led by the ultimate leader. We are led by the Spirit of God. And so having said that, I want to let you know that I'm very excited to be able to share this with you, what I'm about to say next. In 30 days, on September 7th, we will take possession of this building as our permanent church home. And that's not the thing I'm most excited about. Actually, it isn't. The thing I'm most excited about is what's going to begin on September 12th, that Sunday, and for the four Sundays following. Because what I'm going to be doing is laying out the vision, the future vision of the church. The first five years of Illuminate Community Church has been amazing. God has taken us further and faster than most of us anticipated. And yet, I believe that the best is yet to come. And so, we have three words that capture the heartbeat of what we're calling Illuminate 2.0. Illuminate 1.0 was just crazy. It was crazy. Okay? Five years. It's like, wow. But we, and I want to forewarn you, we have a God-sized vision for Illuminate 2.0 in the next chapter. And so we have three words that capture that vision. Bigger, smaller, deeper. When I say bigger, let me tell you exactly what I'm talking about. Talking about creating space for all of those whom God is drawing across our doorstep. People that want to hear the scriptures taught, people that want to hear the message of Jesus Christ. We are absolutely unapologetic about those things. Unapologetic, and I'll tell you why. 
because Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. Therefore, we expect the church to grow. Jesus said, if you lift me up, I'm going to draw people to myself. That's what we do. We lift Jesus up every single week. We expect people to be drawn to that, especially in light of the age, the times in which we live. We are unapologetic about that. But as God grows us, some plant, some water, God is the one who causes the growth. So as God grows us, it's important that as we go bigger, we actually grow smaller. Because this isn't about attending church. That's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is spiritual transformation. It's one of our core values from day one, transform lives. And so because we believe that the ultimate environment for life to begin transformation is in the context of small groups, as God grows us bigger, we actually want to grow smaller. You follow? This is why we have small groups. Now, some of you are newer to the church, and maybe you've been sitting on the sidelines for a little bit. Some of you have been coming for five years, and you've not been actively engaged in a small group. I just want to tell you straight up, if you consider this your church home and your church family, if you consider me one of your pastors, what I'm asking you, beginning September 12th, is to get involved in a small group for that five-week period. Just give us five weeks. Because it's where we will engage in a transformational way where you will be able to rub shoulders with your brothers and sisters in Christ and you're going to be able to digest this. What does all of this mean for me? What does Illuminate 2.0 mean for me? What does God want for me? That's ultimately the question. This is going to be a pivotal time in the life of this church. Only five years old, but this is a historical moment for us. And what I'm asking is for everybody that calls Illuminate Community Church their church home, get involved in a small group and walk with us through this five-week period. We've got groups that meet in the evenings. We provide childcare. There's no excuses. We want you to engage with us in that way because the ultimate, ultimate goal is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ deeper. Deeper is all about discipleship. We're not about, we're not, let me just tell you, when we started the church, we didn't fantasize about brick and mortar. We didn't fantasize about buildings. What we fantasized about were faces people, baptisms, testimonies, transformed lives, marriages being healed, addictions overcome. And it's happening. And so as you participate with us in bigger, smaller, deeper, becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ ultimately, what that does is it increases our influence beyond our walls. These aren't just words, okay? <laughs> These aren't just words. Beyond our walls. We want to maximize, we, we want to expand our influence into the city, into our neighborhoods. We want to be seen as, we're, we're seen as a gift to our city. We want more of that. So ultimately, this is about reaching out, going beyond our walls and generating the kind of momentum that throws even more gas on the fire that is Illuminate Community Church, not only in our city, but indeed throughout the world, you know we have influence in the West Bank, in Palestine, in Cuba. We want more of that. Why? Because Jesus said he's going to build his church. And listen, when he said church, he's talking about, talking about you, Christian. God has a plan for you in all of this. And that's why we want, I, I'm just asking you, 
give us five weeks beginning September 12th. On your way out, you can sign up in the, the lobby, in the north lobby, the south lobby beginning tomorrow. You can jump on the app, the website. You can get engaged that way. If you're already in a small group, you're good to go. We will give you the information uh, that you need. Um, the building is simply a tool, okay? It is a tool to expand the kingdom of God. What's important is your involvement and your engagement with this. And so for some, through each part of this process, you're going to realize, okay, I've just been attending. Now it's time for me to start being. I've been attending the church. Now I need to start being the church. Others, you know, you're, 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 you're new to the faith and you've, you know, you've just been soaking it up and you've been drinking that milk. And so now the transition for you is to move into this self-feeding mode. That's the process of maturity. Some of you, you've been self-feeding for a long time. Now you're, what, where the space that you're going to step into is now I'm going to be responsible for somebody else. Somewhere in this process, God is going to be tugging on your heart and you're going to be changed. Because when all is said and done, what's done for Christ is the only thing that matters and lasts. So Father... Man, all, all, God, all we can say is just we're just grateful for what you're doing in our midst. So many times, so many only God moments, more to come. And you've been so faithful. Father, I'm so grateful for the generosity, for the maturity, for the warmth, the love. I'm so grateful for how this church has ministered to me and to my family. God, we just want more of that. We want more lives to be impacted, more people to get saved, more people growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, Lord. You created us for this purpose, that this is our destiny. Lord, may we step into it. We ask it in the name of the one who makes it all possible, and his name is Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. If you got your Bibles, Acts chapters 18 and 19. If you're new, for the last several months, we've been looking at this amazing historical document, about 2,000 years old. And it tells us about the rise of early Christianity. And one of the things that we've seen is that whenever Christianity, whenever Christianity enters into a culture, it starts to turn that culture upside down. It presses in. And here's why. Because it exposes that culture's idols. We see more of that today in our text. Uh, in chapter 18, I'll summarize it for you. Basically, the apostle Paul is in the city of Athens, and what we learn in the beginning of the text is that the emperor Claudius expels all of the Jews from Rome. We don't know the reason why exactly, but it's interesting. The Roman historian Suetonius actually writes about this event. Again, we don't get a lot of details, but we know that it happened. Just as a reminder, the Bible talks about real people in real places, real historical events. You can go back and fact check all of this stuff. Suetonius is an independent guy, extra biblical writer outside of the Bible. He writes about the emperor expelling the Romans, uh, the Jews from Rome. And so Paul makes his way from Athens to Corinth. And in Corinth, he meets two brilliant missionaries, Aquila and Priscilla. And the three of them spend a few years in the city of Corinth. It's, a, it's a, a crucial city. It's sort of like the hub of activity, commerce. It's a very strategic city. Paul was a, a church planter, but he was a master strategist. If he can get churches planted in the city of Corinth, we can begin to take this thing worldwide. So they spend several years in Corinth. 
preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus. People respond. Churches are planted. There's massive opposition on the part of the Jews. The three of them then find themselves in the city of Ephesus, preaching Jesus, doing what they always do, planting churches. And it's in the city of Ephesus that something remarkable happens. The Spirit of God has always been powerfully upon Paul. But in Ephesus, it's as if God says, I'm going to do a special work here. And Paul, in order to give you street cred, in order for you to gain a hearing and an audience as you open your mouth and you talk about me, my hand is going to be so powerfully upon you. We read this in chapter 19, verse 12, verse 11. God did extraordinary, extraordinary miracles through Paul. Like what? So that even handkerchiefs and aprons, picture this now, handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Again, I believe God was doing this to validate Paul's message so that he could get an audience. There was something special about Paul. You might want to listen to what he has to say as he talks about Jesus. Handkerchief touches Paul, and people are taking it home, and they're taking it to the sick, and they're taking it to those. It's interesting. The text says, evil spirits left just with the touch of this cloth that had touched Paul. That's the power of God through Paul. Okay, spiritual warfare is real. One of the most misbelieved verses in the Bible, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's true. Our real fight is in the unseen realm. The spiritual forces of darkness, highly organized. They have a strategy. It's effective. Now, what's interesting is that our author Luke as we read about the power of Paul, he's going to remind us that there is another power that exists. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Lord Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Who's doing this? Well, seven sons of Sceva. Sceva was a Jewish chief priest. They were doing this. And so one day, the evil spirit answered these guys. Jesus I know, and Paul I know. Now, I know them because their reputation is far and wide because they absolutely own demons. They've been casting out demons for a while. Jesus and Paul, we know about them. But who are you? Who are you? Who are you, seven guys? We don't know anything about you. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, all seven of these guys. It's this great demonic strength in one individual. He gave them such a beatdown that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Demon possession has been around for a long time. Um, this group of Jews was in the business of exorcism, and it seems that they, they had this new thing going on where if they quoted the name of Jesus, that is Paul's Jesus, then the demons would submit and notice that they are totally ineffective. Why? 
because they have no personal relationship with Jesus themselves. What does this tell you? It tells you a lot. One of the things is this. Jesus is not a genie in a bottle. This is the reason why some people have a shallow faith, because Jesus is nothing more than sort of that, you know, far off little thing like if, 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 if I can get you to do this for me, then we're good, right? That's creating God in your own image, and that, that's not going to work. Um, he, Jesus can't be used in that way. So if you want God's power, you, you think, what is it about Paul? How did he have this kind of power? If anybody in ministry has any kind of transformational power, it is because that person knows Jesus. So this incident freaks people out. They see these guys run out naked, right? They're bloodied, and it has the opposite effect of what the demons actually wanted. Satan always overplays his hand. And so the text goes on to tell us that the people are bringing their magic books and their occult items, and they're burning them. They're so freaked out by the reality of this demon possession. Demons are master counterfeits. They will fit the culture. If a demon showed up in this room right now, right, people would be like, give me Jesus, right? They're smarter than that. They adapt to the culture. That's why you see some really weird stuff going down in places like Haiti, certain parts of Africa, where they fit the culture in such a way that they draw people away from God, not to God. And so this is what's happening here. They recognize the source of real power of these people, and it's not in their paganism. Now, what happens next is where I want to spend a few minutes. Christianity it begins, is about to begin to make this massive impact in this, this city of Ephesus. Previously, we heard Christians described as those who are turning the world upside down. But they do so in the most unusual way because they don't come bearing swords and knives and forcing. But... They do present an opposition to the way things are. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. I love that. Early Christians were called the way. I think in part because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Early Christians understand something that many Christians today don't understand. Many Christians today, they'll tell you that Jesus is one way to God, but not the way. He is a way. You have to check yourself on that. Let's let Jesus speak for himself. That's always best. And so Jesus said, I am the way. Again, early Christians made no apology for boldly proclaiming this exclusivity. And why would they do that? Because of the resurrection, period. So the culture didn't like this because it was filled with idols. Now, what I'm going to share with you next is, is really important for you to understand what we're about to read. If you don't understand this little historical piece of information, the rest of it really won't make a lot of sense to you. So the city of Ephesus was, was a really special place in the first century A.D. for this reason. Its patron god was Artemis. And Artemis was a crowd favorite. It was one of the most popular of all the pagan gods. Artemis was the goddess of wild things, wild creatures. Oftentimes, she's pictured with a bow and arrow or she's holding a fawn by the neck. She's the goddess of wild things. In the city of Ephesus, it was the epicenter for the worship of Artemis. In fact, so much so that there was a temple constructed that was so large, it took 120 years to build. 
So let me show you an artist's rendering of what it would have looked like. This massive structure. People from all over the known world, thousands and thousands and thousands of people would make their pilgrimage to worship their favorite goddess, Artemis, also known as Diana, in the city of Ephesus. Now let me show you the ruins of what the temple looks like today. Not much left. But back in its day, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. It's kind of like having the Grand Canyon in your backyard. That was Ephesus, okay? When the gospel enters a city like Ephesus with its hardcore idolatry and goddess worship, uh, well, we understand what unfolds next, okay? Listen, verse 24. So there's this silversmith. He's living in Ephesus. His name is Demetrius. He made silver shrines of Artemis. And that brought in a lot of business. We're talking money for the craftsmen that lived there. So back in the day, uh, they had guilds, and guilds in some ways existed much like unions exist today. And so this guy, Demetrius, kind of functions like a union boss, right? He has a lot of weight, a lot of pull. Um, what he does brings in money for others. They make little trinkets, objects that can be purchased by those making the pilgrimage. There's big money now in their trade in the city of Ephesus, okay? So he calls everybody together, along with the workers in related trades, and he says, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. Thousands of people come through our city. We're making this stuff. We're selling it to them as, as they want to worship the goddess Artemis. We're making good money. But you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Do we have a map of the province of Asia to throw up there? I don't know if we included this or not. No? Oh, yeah, cool. All right, so this is the province of Asia. This is not a small area. This is one man's influence. Let me just say it again. This is one person's influence who's sold out for Jesus. He begins to own this entire territory of the known world. All these cities he's traveling to. He's telling people about Jesus. And people come to faith in Christ. You never know what God is doing ahead of it. And by the way, very often Paul leaves this city battered and bruised because the Jews don't like what he's saying. And so he's this gospel beast and all this part of He's taking the gospel all into this entire area, planting churches. So this guy Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. So there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Bottom line is, we're losing money. Whenever Christianity is brought into a culture, it's going to press in on that culture's idols. We talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, it's, it seems like every city, I was thinking about this um, this last week, it's like every major city in the United States has its own patron god, its own idol, right? I was, I was just trying to think this through. Maybe you can help me a little bit. Like, for example, uh, the, god of, uh, the god of Washington, D.C. What would that god be? Power, influence. Uh, the god of Hollywood, would be maybe the God of fame, right? I mean, it's like, it's like impressed on the sidewalks, right? God of fame. 
Um, the God of New York, New York, maybe that's recognition. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Um, what else? The God of Boston might be intelligence, knowledge, intellect. The God of Memphis, barbecue. <laughs> I, that's a God that, that tempts me. It tempts me. I try not to bow down. Um, okay, what is the God of Scottsdale? That's too easy. Money. It's like, name the place. And it seems like it has its patron God. I was, I was really I was trying to go deep on this one. I'm like, what, what, is, what is the patron God of a place like Gila Bend? It was taking too long. I couldn't come up with it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like the Space Age Lodge or something. I've actually stayed there one time when I was dove hunting. Great restaurant. Every, every, it's like every city has its patron God. And so when the gospel comes in, all of a sudden people are going to be like, oh, I, that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. I'm not sure I like that message. Well, see, what's happening is your idols are already owning you. You're not satisfied. You're not happy. You might want to think about the one true God. As Paul said last week, there is a God that you all don't know. This God is the creator of everything. So there's this identifiable language. We mentioned it briefly last week, but it's worth repeating. There's this identifiable language that exposes your idolatry, helps you recognize it in yourself. You might say, well, I have God, but if I just had this one thing, this one more thing in my life, then I would be happy. Or if this was removed from my life, I would be ruined. I would be nothing. My life wouldn't be worth living. What, what, however you answer that question, you've just exposed your God. So this is where it gets really, really scary because even good things can become idols. In fact, I would argue that the most powerful idols are good things that we turn into idols. The most powerful idols are good things that we turn into idols. Uh, I'll give you an example. Working, uh, building a career, having integrity, um, all desirable things. But, the, but that, that can become an idol. Your job have, can become an idol. Your career can become an idol. The good thing, it's, it's good. It's a good thing to have a good career. Be productive. Contribute. But how many children have been sacrificed to the idol of work? How many marriages have been sacrificed on the idol of career? Career's a good thing. But when it is elevated to the greatest thing, then it becomes idolatry. To love and to serve your spouse is a noble thing. You know, but one day, uh, Jill's going to stand over my grave. We have this ongoing, you know, we, we razz it, who's going to die first? Um, Jill's going to stand over my grave one day. And she'll be sad. And if her entire life has been built upon my life, if I am her idol, where is she going to go when I'm no longer around? <laughs> In her deepest moment of grief, who is she going to turn to if her idol has been laid to rest? See, this is why over and over there are things spoken about God that you realize, especially as you get older and life begins to take things away from you, you start to lean on. God never leaves you. He doesn't forsake you. God will always be with you. If you make a person your God, then they will constantly disappoint you with their imperfections 
and you will constantly disappoint them with your expectations. Amen. So if you've created any idols in your life at all, and those of us who have come out of addiction backgrounds, um, you, you know that... Uh, you know that there is, a, there is a power to being enslaved to things. Uh, if you idolize your politics, your beauty, your gender, your sexual identity, your ethnicity, your wealth, if you idolize your good deeds, your moral life, your competence, your children, your spouse, the approval of others, if you say, my happiness is totally and completely dependent on any one of these things, then you've exposed your God. Back in the day, there was a God for everything. There was the God of prosperity. There was a God of sex, Aphrodite. There was a God of wealth. You name it, there was a God for it. People would bow down, worship, make sacrifice. I used to think, those people were so primitive. Now I believe they're just a lot more honest. They're more real than we are. Uh, they're more open about it. We live in denial of it. We are the unsophisticated ones. So how do you overcome these idols? You don't love good things less. Uh, you don't love your kids less. You don't love your spouse less. You love the things of God more. You love Jesus more. How do you come to love Jesus more? Everything always comes back to the cross. Everything always comes back to Jesus. You picture Jesus on the cross, him dying in your place, and that is this real softening agent. You keep your focus there, and your heart begins to be transformed. And then all other things in life take their rightful place. So those former idols, when they let you down, when they don't meet your expectations, it's not so bad anymore because you're not enslaved to them. They don't own you. When Christianity is brought into any city, it will pose a threat. Here's what happens next, verse 28. So when they heard this, that they were about to lose all this money, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Paul is great. You know, if, if what we know about Paul, you know, Paul being pr pretty much an average kind of dude back in his day, you know, he's this guy who's probably about five foot four, five foot five, right? And he's going around, he's, he's got a great intellect, okay? Uh, but here's this guy who his friends are in trouble. The mob comes after his friends, and Paul's like, I got to get in there. You know, I got to get in there. I got I, I to I gotta do what I, whatever I can do to help these guys. No thought of personal harm that would come to him. For two hours, the text says, the, the crowd is shouting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. Christianity is beginning to dismantle the idols of the city, but in the most unusual way because it's changing the hearts of the people. Sometimes people will say, you know why I, don't, I can't be a Christian? Because, you know, stuff like the Crusades, you know, the Crusades, what went down in the name of the Crusades and Christianity, that's why religion is bad, Christianity is bad, I would never want to be a Christian. Not everything that goes down in the name of Christianity represents biblical Christianity. 
That's what's cool about the book of Acts. You see pure Christianity. You get the greatest picture of how to influence a culture in the right way. They're not tearing down statues. They're not running around making jokes and belittling people who are bowing down to those statues. What they're doing is they're introducing the gospel of Jesus Christ and telling you, God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Which one of your gods did that? None. And when the town clerk, he's kind of like the mayor, had quieted the crowd down, he's like, shh, shh, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? That's part of their mythology. Artemis came to them from the sky in a stone, and there she is. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and don't do anything rash. She's like, relax, Artemis is awesome. She came from the sky. She can defend herself. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor are they blasphemers of our goddess. This is really cool. Christians go about things sometimes in a completely wrong way. You know, it's like, they, the, the, here's what they can't say. They can't say, you know, these Christians are really a nuisance because it's like they're belittling us. They're making fun of us. They're tearing our statues down. No. They're simply saying, there is a God that you don't know. He loves you, and we want you to know him. We're not making jokes. We're not putting people down. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the one thing that the Romans did not tolerate was any kind of uprising. Uh, it was uh, uh, iron fist in a velvet glove. Any kind of uprising at all. This is one of the reasons why they think the Emperor Claudius uh, expelled the Jews from Rome is because they were getting a little too out of control. They were, they were upset about some things. They started this uprising, and the emperor said, you're out of here. Get out of here. They didn't like riots. And so this guy has the understanding, hey, what's going on here? This, this could be bad for us. We might draw undue attention, the kind of attention we don't want, and that could be very bad for us. So if they've done something wrong, these Christians, then let's prosecute and not riot because our rioting is going to have all kinds of negative consequences. It's going to be bad for us. It's interesting because God uses an unsaved person to spare his people in this moment. So the gospel we see provoking the culture, but it does so not because its communicators are offensive. That's an important lesson for some of us. Rather, it challenges the world's idols. And so obviously those same idols exist today, the gods of sex, money, fame, power, recognition, all of those things, addiction. But there are other more subtle idols that are more insidious. And those are the good things that we make ultimate things. So now it's been two weeks in a row that we've looked at our own personal idols. So what, what are we going to do? I want to end by having you focus on what you have in front of you, Christian. Okay? What do I mean by that? I want you to focus on eternity. And all that you have in front of you. The Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. You can't even begin to comprehend what is in store for you. If you really believe that, you move from this posture, right, 
possessing things, being owned by things in the end, to a posture like this. I'm open-handed with it. I'm open-handed with it. You know, I, I don't have to have this in my life in order to be satisfied. It's a blessing. Good things are blessings. But I'm not enslaved to it. There, in the end, is nothing that is going to hold you in the grave. Nothing. All of that made possible because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You step into that, you begin to loosen your grip on the things of this world. You begin to experience the kind of life Jesus intended for you to live. And you will be blessed. The kind of life that you've always wanted, not only here and now, but more so in the life to come. So Father, every single week, the text is so rich. God, may we understand more fully your greatness, what you've done for us, what we have to look forward to. That day in eternity when we're able to fully, fully celebrate what we have set our hearts upon in full worship here in this life on this planet. God, as we move into the future, your spirit continues to lead us. We are so grateful. Father, speak to every heart in the room now, I pray, as only your spirit can do. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.